Job chapter 26. We saw last Sunday in the final speech of one of any of Job's comforters that Bildad remains as inflexible as ever. And as a result, he paints himself into a corner because of his extreme positions. We saw last week four points uh, in his short speech, only five verses. Each of them begins with a correct premise, but then sort of twists off in the wrong direction. And by the time he gets to the end of his speech, he arrives at a conclusion with which we cannot agree. First of all, he begins with this wonderful doxology in which we see that God, according to Bildad, is unapproachable. And we would agree with him in his declarations that God is over all authority. He maintains peace. He commands all power. He is the light of all the world. He is holy. He is pure. That is to say, he is power, peace, perfection and purity. But we noticed last week that Bildad does not talk about God being presence in the world or of God having personality. And therefore, for him, God cannot be approached, which leads to a second point is that man cannot be redeemed. If God is unapproachable, then what hope does any human being have? He then moves on to say that creation itself is imperfect, which I think is actually to set up his final premise and here he has locked, he has locked himself and uh, he's painted himself into a corner from which there is no escape. At the end, he says, human beings have no significance. If you look at the last verse of chapter 25, um, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. Here, Bildad loses us completely. We talked about this last Sunday. We talked about it in Sunday school today. We believe that all human beings are sinners in the theological language, that they are totally depraved. Not that everyone is as sinful as they could be, but that we are separated from God by our sin and we are unable to redeem ourselves. We saw that to call someone a sinner is not to say they're insignificant. It is quite the reverse. It is to affirm that they are significant. Those who are made in the image of God are capable of breaking God's law and offending God himself. And human beings have done that. What we see in Bildad in resorting to name calling. To say, I think indirectly, if not directly, that Job is nothing but a maggot, a worm. We see something that I think is common throughout human history. And that is oftentimes uh, in our Speaking against people, we seek to degrade them. We give them the names of animals. We say to someone that they're a pig or that someone is a dog. And the list goes on and on. And again, we saw in Sunday school that people who are in rebellion against God do one of two things, if not both. They lower human beings and they raise animals. And here, Bildad, by putting God so far away, has lowered humanity to the point where he says to his Friend, they are still friends. You're nothing but a maggot. You're nothing but a worm. The difference between Bildad and Job is that Bildad and his friends have faith in their theology. Job has faith in his God. 
And we may find ourselves agreeing with Job's friends from time to time and really sort of wincing at some of the things that Job says that seem rather intemperate. We should acknowledge that Job is on a pilgrimage of faith. His friends are still at the starting line. They're still arguing theology. They are not living a life of faith. In chapters 26 and 27, we find Job's final reply to his friends. But he's not done. We will see uh, chapter 28 is a hymn to wisdom. And then 29, 30, and 31 is sort of Job's last stand. This is his final plea. I am innocent of the things you accuse me of. But he begins today, I think rather sarcastically, to those who would teach him, particularly to Bildad, Job says, let me teach you. Follow along, if you would, as I read uh, the first uh, four verses. Then Job replied, how you have helped the powerless, how you have saved the arm that is feeble. What advice you have offered to one without wisdom and what great insight you have displayed. Who has helped you utter these words and whose spirit spoke from your mouth? I don't think Job is happy at this point. I don't think he appreciates being called a maggot or a worm, something that has the smell of death about it. And if you if you remember, Job is probably has festering sores that have maggots in them. I mean, his condition is quite sorry. And to say to Job, you're no better than that thing that is in your flesh is rather degrading. And so Job replies, and for the first time in the book, he uses the singular pronoun you. So he's talking to Bildad. Okay? In the past, he said you, plural, talking to the friends. Here he is speaking to Bildad specifically. And he begins by asking a series of questions. Now, the NIV has the first four as statements, but I think they're highly ironic and it can be put in the form of questions. And the questions can be paraphrased as this. How in the world did you ever come to think that you had a reputation for giving sound advice? You call this help? One might say, where did you go to school? Let me see your diploma. Who gave you your counseling degree? What makes you think that you're giving sound advice? The second question is, who do you think you're speaking to? I'm not stupid. I'm not a fool. Bildad, who do you think you're speaking to? And then finally, what in the world prompts you to speak with the tone that you do? Do you think you are inspired by God? Do you think that it is God's breath through you that is saying these very things? There is a pause, uh, scholars have argued, after verse number four, that, that Job is waiting for Bildad to answer. Uh, Bildad does not. And by the way, in the rest of Job's speeches to the end of chapter 31, there will be critical moments at, at which it seems that Job does pause to say, OK, your turn. And his friends have nothing to say in reply. They have failed to convince him by their teaching. They have failed to comfort him. Now it is his turn. Let me teach you. And he begins in verses uh, 5 through 14, uh, speaking of God's power. Follow along, if you would, as I read. The dead are in deep anguish, those beneath the waters and all that live in them. 
Death is naked before God. Destruction lies uncovered. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake aghast at his rebuke. By his power he churned up the sea. By his wisdom he cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath the skies became fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? Job's friends throughout their speeches have spoken about the power of God. Eliphaz, I think, is the first in chapter 5. He says of God, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Bildad, as we saw last week in chapter 25, said, Dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Zophar, the third friend, says, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Job does not deny what they have to say, and neither would we. But he proceeds to teach them how little they actually know about God. He begins with the world or the underworld of the dead. That which we fear in part because we know so little about it. Job wants his friends to know that God has complete mastery over the realm of the dead. Which in his words here in verses 5 and 6 are seen in three ways. That which is under the waters, that which is Sheol or death, that which is destruction or Abaddon. In the ancient world, this is what people believed about the afterlife. It's only when, with the coming of Christ that we know about resurrection, that we know about heaven, that we know about hell. And so people were in the dark about this, and so they referred to the afterworld as Sheol. Or Abaddon. They believed that it was under the ocean somewhere, that that's where dead people went, and that they had miserable existences there. But we don't really know. And Job says to his friends that God absolutely knows that it is naked, if you wish, to God. Nothing is covered from God, nothing is hidden from Him. God knows these things. And the question would be well, don't the three friends know this? Well, if you go back, if you get a chance and read what his friends say about the power of God, it has always been limited to the things that they can sense with their senses or apprehend with their senses. Um, that is to say, God has complete control over the things I can know or sense. Job wants them to know God has more power than that. Do not limit God by your own limitations. And so in verses 7 through 14, he goes to creation, that which in, uh, in a real sense we can uh, perceive by the senses and apprehend. He says that when God created the world, it was as though he pitched a tent. But he pitched his tent on nothing. That if you wish, God walked out into the nothingness of space and pitched creation. He pitched uh, the universe there. By the way, I, I've been using the past tense, but if you look at what Job says, you know, he spreads, he suspends. God is still doing these things. 
He talks about the fact that the earth is is suspended over nothing. And, and I find as I read this that I am so 21st century, if you were so scientifically informed, the earth uh, rotates on its axis, it revolves around the sun, gravity, uh, centripetal force, and, and all these different things. Um, we say, well, you know, these, these, these poor ancient people, unscientific, pre-modern, they didn't know about the science of creation, the science of the universe. But I wonder if, if we shouldn't sort of step back and just be in awe of it all. Yes, the earth does rotate, it does revolve, but how does it do that? Why is it that everything works the way that it does? Under the canopy that God has established, he continues his works. And we're told in verse number eight that he binds clouds as one stores wine in a wineskin. They do not split open under the great weight of water. And the clouds look so wonderful. They're so puffy and up there, but they're filled with water. And, and, and why don't they come down? And I'm sure there's some scientific explanation, but... Are we not in awe of what God has done? He also says in verse number nine that God uses the same clouds to cover the face of the full moon. The King James has a much different translation for verse number nine. He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it. I think the point is that God is the one who does this. Verse 10, he sets the horizon the farthest limits of what we can see. He draws the boundary between light and dark. He shakes the foundations of creation. He has power over all things. We come to verses uh, 12 and 13, and we, uh, we come across something that is unfamiliar to us. He talks about cutting Rahab to pieces. If you know anything about the Old Testament, if I say to you, who is Rahab? We think of the prostitute at Jericho who hid the spies and who was spared when Jer Jericho was destroyed. Rahab, in, in verse number 13, the gliding serpent, uh, is one of the monsters of the ancient world, along with Leviathan. The ancient world believed that if you went out into the ocean, and that's why the ocean was such a scary place, that underneath there, there were these great monsters, Rahab and Leviathan. It's not what the scripture teaches. It is what the pagan people around God's people believe. And so we find not only in the book of Job, but in other places in the Old Testament, we read of God destroying Rahab, God destroying Leviathan. Those which represent, represented chaos to the ancient world. They were part of the mythology of the pagan world. God has power over those things as well. God has great power. These are all amazing, but we must be careful that we do not limit God's activities. That we limit him to what he can do within his creation. Verse number 14 is the key to all of this. All these amazing things that Job has spoken about are but the outer fringe, the outer limits, if you wish, of what God does of his power and his works. We are amazed at what God does, and yet that's just the very, very outer part of it, that God's voice is but a whisper compared to the greatness of who he is.
And those who think they can comprehend God's creation must beware, otherwise they take the next step and believe that they can comprehend God and take a final step that they comprehend God completely. And Job wants to say to his friends, let me teach you about God. Now we come to chapter 27 and we'll look just at the first six verses here. Here Job says to his friends, let me teach you about the fear of God. Follow along if you would as I read. And Job continued his discourse. As surely as God lives who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have breath within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Let's take a brief detour for a moment. Stop and think about something. We are now more than halfway through the book of Job. Let me read to you what one author says about what we've seen thus far. Strange as it seems, in all the wordy discourses of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, not one of them has addressed God or prayed to him. Evidently, he is so distant and they are so fearful, there is no communication. Job is quite the opposite. He prays to God, God he uh, speaks to God, complains to God, and fights with God. I hadn't ever noticed that in our study of Job thus far. That Job, if you remember, particularly in the first cycle, usually his answers were two chapters. The first one he speaks to his friends and the second one he speaks to God. At no point in this book do Job's friends address God. At no point do they pray to God. They don't pray for Job. They don't pray that he will be healed or that his eyes would be opened so that he would repent. They are so busy in the realm of theology that they have neglected to pray. Job, on the other hand, is living in both worlds, where he is, in fact, talking about who God is, but he's also speaking to God. Perhaps not always in ways that we are comfortable with, but he does pray to God. Job's friends, on the other hand, have argued with Job, trying to persuade him that their view of God is right, which means that Job has committed great sin. That is why he's suffering these things. That's why he needs to repent and then he will be restored. The same commentator who uh, wrote what I read to you a minute ago spoke about hearing a speaker at a chapel service in a seminary. The speaker noted that when you look at the life of Jesus, that he had a stormy prayer life, but a calm public life. And certainly when you look at the last days of the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus in the garden, we find him having a very stormy prayer life. But then as he faced his accusers being calm, so, so much so that his accusers were amazed at him. The speaker then went on to confess that his own prayer life and public life were quite the reverse. That he prayed in calm and private and he stormed in public. And I wonder if we would not confess the same. See, Job's, Job is praying to God, 
and his relationship with his friends isn't particularly calm. But it is amazing that this man who has suffered so much physically and psychologically hasn't just lost it completely. As his friends keep telling him, Job, you're a terrible person. That's why you're suffering. You're terrible. That's why God killed your children. You're a terrible person. You're a maggot. And yet Job is able to stand up to this, I think, because Job has in fact been in contact with God. He has been praying to God. And even though it's been quite stormy, it has enabled him to stand up against his friend's accusation. In this passage here in chapter 27, we are given insight into Job's prayer life as he storms against God, whom he accuses as being the one who denied him justice and the one who has made him taste the bitterness of soul. It is the one who's given him life because he talks about as long as I have life within me, the breath of God within my nostrils. God is the creator to Job. God is the sustainer. Again, Job professes his innocence in the strongest terms. I will never admit that you are right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never, never let go of it. You might be wondering, okay, this is the fear of God. This is how Job is going to teach his friends the fear of the Lord. Absolutely. You see, Job does not sit passively. He's not sitting there grinning and bearing it. He's not sitting there biting the bullet or whatever expression you want to use. Job is suffering and he wants to know what's going on. Why are these things happening to me? And Job is willing to take the risk of challenging God. He knows that God can be asked hard questions because God is not capricious. He's not temperamental. You don't have to watch out for his moods. He's not unstable. He's not cruel or mean. He is, in fact, reliable, trustworthy, and just. And therefore, Job is willing to challenge God in prayer. Stop and think a minute. The parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. The three servants who are given the talents, you know the story. One is given five, one is given two, one is given one. And when the master comes back, the one who had five doubled it. He has ten. The one who had two doubled it, and he got four. But the, the last one took his talent and buried it in the ground. And he did so because of what he thought of the master. When the master is like, what is this? Why did you do this? And he said, I knew that you are a hard man. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. It was because he perceived his master to be a hard man that he was afraid, that he didn't take any risk, that he buried it in the ground so it would not be lost. His fear of the master kept him from taking any risks whatsoever. What did the other two, the other two servants, what did they think of the master? If you look at the parable, we're never told directly. But we do know that they were willing to take risks with the master's money. You can't double your money without taking significant risks. They must have trusted that even if in some, some horrible thing happened, that they invest the money and they don't double the money, 
in fact, they don't get any money at all, that they lose their investment, that the master would not be displeased with him. They trusted the goodness of the master. The third servant, on the other hand, did not. He believed the master to be hard and cruel. Let's talk about the fear of the Lord. Do we think of the fear of the Lord in terms of risk? Do we think of prayer in terms of risk? Are we willing to take risks in prayer or do we play it safe? You know, talking theology can be a lot more fun, a lot less risky than dealing with the God of the universe. And therefore, I think theology oftentimes is more attractive to us as sinners because in our hard hearts, we may imagine God to be cruel and hard. I think of the example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Far too often, we are too quick to go to the second part of Jesus' prayer. Your will be done. We sort of skip over the first part where we are told that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, that he was in anguish, that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And we noted two Sundays ago that as Jesus prayed in the garden, he was not in rebellion. God the Father had said, this is the path, this is where you're going to walk. And Jesus in the garden says, are there any other options? That's a rather risky approach to take, don't you think? If God says this is what you're going to do, then shouldn't you just shut up and do it? But it is, in fact, with the fear of God in prayer that we can ask God hard questions. And Job does that time and time again. Instead of sort of being like his friends who want to talk theology and open the theological books and say, this is the way it works, Job. You do bad things, you suffer bad things. You do good things, you get good things. You're suffering, therefore, you must have done something bad. It has not occurred to any of the friends, you know, we should talk to God about this. Because this doesn't make sense to us. It has not occurred to them to talk to God. The fear of the Lord does not mean passivity. The fear of the Lord, in fact, can mean taking great risks. I don't know if you've ever noticed in family dynamics, but I have noticed with some families that the children are so comfortable coming to the parents and asking questions. Embarrassing questions, difficult questions. Questions I might be hesitant to ask. And, and they feel the freedom to ask this because they trust their parents. That their parents will say, well, that's a stupid question. That their parents aren't mean or cruel or distant. That the parents are there to listen. That the child is willing to risk. And I wonder, as God's children, if we are willing to risk, or if we have a warped view of God, that we are scared of him. And for, the, for us, the fear of the Lord means don't bother him. You know, don't bother your dad right now. You know, he's not in a good mood. Uh, this is not a good time. And in fact, we can go to God at any time and take great risks. There's one thing I want to uh, just touch on briefly in verse number six. 
where Job says, my conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Um, You should note that conscience is not always an accurate barometer of our, our position in life or what is true. Our consciences can be trained, they should be trained to react in line with God's word. But we are sinners and our consciences are warped, they are twisted, they are fallen. Not always a good way for us to make decisions. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. A clear conscience is not always a good barometer of our true state. Job does know that he hasn't done any great wickedness for which God would respond by afflicting him in this, in this terrible way. And so he takes a stand between his clear conscience and God's justice. And Job is saying, basically, I trust God. One more question before we go on. If conscience isn't always an accurate guide, is it not possible to step over the line in taking risks with God? Is it not possible that in being bold with God, as Job is, that we might not, in fact, say things we shouldn't say or have an attitude we shouldn't have, that we step over that invisible line from being a child to being a presumptuous child against God? Absolutely. In fact, Job steps over the line big time and God must put him back in his place. And Job will respond in confession. He says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. Yeah, Job stepped over the line. But you know what? Job was actually up and moving in terms of faith. His friends were sitting in their theological chairs having these wonderful discussions, but never engaging the God of the universe. Job was the one who was on this pilgrimage. He was the one on the move. God will tell Job's friends um, that he was angry with them because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job go, or God goes on to say, My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. If we take risk, is there potential for failure? Yeah, without question, certainly. Not always will we fail, but that's part of the equation. I think it is the fear of failure oftentimes that keeps people from taking great risks in their life. But as God's children, do we trust him? Or do we think that he's a moody, temperamental, distant God who really can't be bothered? Or can we, as a child goes to a parent, ask him the hard questions? What is going on in my life? That's what Job wants to know. Job wants to go to heaven, to the heavenly court and plead his cause. They're like, Job, what what are you doing? God's going to strike you dead with lightning. See, that's our vision of God. Job's vision is quite different. God is fair. God is just. God can be trusted. And if I get out of line, God will deal with me accordingly. But God is fair. For all of his friends' pronouncements about God, 
one wonders if they even know who God is at all. They certainly don't trust him. They are afraid of him and not in the proper way, but in the way that one is afraid of someone who is evil, someone who will do you great harm. Next week, the Lord willing, we will finish chapter 27 and it will lead into the hymn of wisdom in which Job says to his friends, let me teach you about God's justice. Just in closing, if we claim to worship the God who made the universe, who sustains the universe, then I think we should keep certain truths in mind. First of all, we should remember that we have seen, heard, and experienced but a faint whisper of who God truly is. It is true that we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. God sent his Son into the world, which we read in John chapter 1, the light that came into the world. Job did not have this. But I think we should still keep in mind that God is far larger, far more infinite, I think, than we oftentimes acknowledge. Secondly, we should keep in mind that we can trust him, that God is trustworthy. And thirdly, that we can take risks in our dealing with him. In fact, we can take risks in our lives. Because God is not going to kill us for failure. God is not going to say, you messed up, that's it, you're out. God knows far better than we are how sinful we are. He knows how weak we are, how frail we are. And he knows that we are going to fail. There's only one person or one type of person who does not fail in the world, and that is a person who doesn't take risk. It is the person who takes that risk who faces the potential of failure. A person who never prays to God never has to worry about offending God in prayer, stepping over the line with God in prayer. Yeah, but then they never grow either. They never learn. They never develop a relationship with God. They're stuck in this safe, cozy chair of talking about God and how wonderful he is and all the things that he does, but they never really engage him. God is not unapproachable, as Bildad says. God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bridge the gap between us. And now that Christ has come and we remember his death today, we can engage God. We can take risk. We can grow. But I think only if we trust him. And if we don't, then, then we, we are the losers. We lose out. At the end of the story, it is Job who has made this amazing pilgrimage of faith. It is Job who grows and not his friends. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we pray to you, we do want to show reverence. We do want to show the proper respect. But may we see, as in the life of Job, that prayer is about life and death issues. As we see in the life of your son Jesus, it isn't always calm. 
there can be great sorrow and great anguish. And even questioning and saying, is, is there another way? Can you change what's going on in my life? I fear that we want to play it safe because we don't trust you. We're afraid somehow we might offend you. Fail to realize that we are sinners and what we do offends you all the time. But by your grace, we are now your children. You are a father who can be loved and trusted because he loves his children and wants to listen to them. And in doing this, we show greater respect and greater reverence than rather than if we just sit on the side and, and if we're passive throughout our lives. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed you, has come and lived among us. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death that we remember today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we have communion today, several months ago we spoke about God's hospitality. Uh, and I just want to sort of repeat some of the things and to refresh our memories. Our lives on this planet are demonstrations of God's hospitality. This is his world. We breathe his air. We eat his food. In fact, we're going to be doing that in just a little bit. But I think it is because of the hardness of our hearts that we don't. We don't recognize God's hospitality. Rather than hearing the expression in Spanish, mi casa es su casa, my house is your house. What we hear from God is, if you live under my roof, you're going to live by my rules. And we totally ignore God's generosity, his overwhelming generosity in all that he shares with us. When Jesus came into the world, he is the beginning of the new creation. God created the world, put Adam and Eve there, gave them all the trees except for the one tree. Of course, that was the one tree that they ended up eating from. Jesus comes and he initiates the new covenant, the new creation, and he does so in the context of a meal. He was the host of the Passover meal, showing hospitality. He said to them, take and eat. This is my food and I share it with you. The Lord's Supper, I think, should be for us a real symbol of God's hospitality. His hospitality to us in creation, but also in redemption in the new creation. In a few minutes, we're going to be going in the back room and, and have a meal together. This is the beginning of that. As we remember uh, the death of Christ, how that his body was broken his blood was shed that we might be the sons and daughters of God himself.
Usually before we eat and drink, I read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But today I'd like to do something different, to read to you a Puritan prayer from the book The Valley of Vision to deal specifically with the Lord's Supper. God of all good, I bless you for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them your loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. You have prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I rest wholly on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to you in love. By your Spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. O may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink. Testify before all all men that I do for myself. Gladly, in faith and reverence and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may your indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? minutes to get everything set up. It's partially set up, but we'll be meeting in the back room in a few minutes uh, to have lunch together. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.